We rode past the other bodies of men and women and four more dead babies, looking very soiled in the daylight towards the village, whose loneliness we now knew meant death and horror. By the outskirts were low mud walls, sheepfolds, and on one something red and white. I looked close and saw the body of a woman folded across it, bottom upwards, nailed there by a sore bayonet whose haft struck hideously into the air from between her naked legs. About her lay others, perhaps twenty in all, variously killed. The Zagi burst into wild peals of laughter, the more desolate for the warm sunshine and clear air of this upland afternoon. I said, The best of you bring me the most Turkish dead. And we turned after the fading enemy, on our way shooting down those who had fallen out by the roadside and came imploring our pity. One wounded Turk, half-naked, not able to stand, sat up and wept to us. Abdullah turned away his camel's head, but the Zagi, with curses, crossed his track and whipped three bullets from his automatic through the man's bare chest. The blood came out with his heartbeats, throb-throb, throb-throb, slower and slower. Incident on the advance to Damascus. Lawrence of Arabia destroys a Turkish column. 24th of September, 1918. From report by T.E. Lawrence. Welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. Today we are back with the man on the move, the insurgent, a person who rises in active revolt against authority. You won't be surprised to learn that they've been with us for a long time and they are still with us today. By the way, if you have any comments or thoughts on this podcast, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. So, back to our men and women slipping through the long grass to cut the enemy's throat, blow up his bridges or plant an IED. Sun Tzu had a number of points to make on this art form of war. I paraphrase. When the enemy is relaxed, make them toil. When the enemy is well fed, make them starve. When the enemy is settled, make them move. It is, of course, the supreme art of war to subdue your enemy without a fight. Not easily accomplished. Let us give you our thoughts in the following hour or so. There are differing types of insurgency. We will explain, and there are many examples, from Sparta in ancient Greece to the American Civil War and to South Africa's Burr campaign against the Brits at the beginning of the 20th century, to the many conflicts in the last 100 years, including what is now happening in Ukraine. What have we learnt, if anything? Jamie, why don't you start us with the soft underbelly? Plunge in and tell us what are the types of insurgents. Well, to misquote Sun Tzu, I was settled and now I have to move. But we'll start with knives, Tom, because you know, insurgency takes so many different forms. It is unconventional warfare. It's 360 degrees. It involves the civilian population. It involves a lot of psychological warfare and deception. So a lot of our previous podcasts have actually touched on the subject. But at, at its most basic, it's a man with a knife. 
And you can go back in history to the cryptia of Sparta, the young men who went out with a knife to not only murder helots, the serfs and slaves, but also to assassinate the enemies of Sparta. You can go back to the Sicarii of the Holy Land who fought the Romans, fought other zealots, fought those who believed in the Roman Empire. And they were stabbing people. The assassins in the early Middle Ages, they were killing Seljuk Turks. They were killing the enemies of the Templars. They had various alliances. And they were mounting their own insurgency. Then you get the Afghans. And in 1880, Brigadier General Henry Brooke, he wrote in his diary, very exasperated when he took, took over the command of the Kandahar garrison, that young Afghans were slipping into Kandahar and stabbing British soldiers in the marketplaces and alleyways. So this has gone on throughout history. At least they were wearing clothes, unlike the Kriptaya, who, who seemed to do it, run around with a knife, knife and absolutely nothing on. Well, that might have been a Plutarch or Plato embellishment, but we don't They were know. just showing off. <laughs> I think you'd be noticed. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was a distraction. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so to get back to the types of insurgent, we've actually done quite a lot on this already in some of our episodes. We talked about it in Special Force, episode 24 of this podcast. Uh, terrorist, episode 57. Mercenary, episode 46. And camouflage episode 44 that's right Tom because there are as I said so many different elements to these things so often there is assassination so often there's hostage taking so often there's pushback by the regime that the insurgents are fighting but in every level it's it's a multi-dimensional and psychological war not just a kinetic war so this first type we could call proxy warfare what is a proxy war? A proxy war is really where other countries, other nations, other regimes have an interest in a, a civil war or a, a conflict in another nation. And it's always cheaper rather than to send your own forces. It can be politically expedient not to get involved yourself, but simply to sit back and train and equip and help in, in other ways the insurgency force that is there. I mean, you remember how the, the Green Berets, for example, helped the Northern Alliance uh, in the overthrow of the Taliban. I mean, way back, the US were helping the, the Mujahideen, and that went on for the 10 years that the Soviet Union were involved in Afghanistan. So mounting a proxy war, bleeding the enemy out, using the insurgency organization is very useful. Okay, so let's have some examples of that. Um, the hump in World War Two. Well, the hump was really the air corridor between India and China. And you have the US Air Force flying these 500-mile missions. They, they were extremely dangerous, very hazardous missions, uh, long distance over the eastern edge of the Himalayas, the uplift of the Himalayas, and supplying weapons, supplying advisors and giving aid to Chiang Kai-shek's uh, forces, nationalist forces, that were fighting this ongoing guerrilla campaign against the Japanese who had invaded uh, Manchuria and the rest of China. So it was a very useful campaign for the Americans. And, and this has, again, gone on through history. 
And the Chiang Kai-shek, he was the nationalist leader. They all ended up on uh, what is now Taiwan. So in but a way, he... history has continued in a, in a constant thread to this day. Another example, of course, in the middle of the First World War, when um, all eyes were on the Western conflict between uh, Germany and the, and the Allies, and of course the Russians as well, was the Easter Rising in Ireland in 1916. Of course, and uh, this was a, another example. This was a European power, this time Germany, supporting th those who wanted independence uh, down in Dublin. And so there was the Easter Rising. It was, it was put down quite quickly, and people were arrested, people were killed, but it was pretty bloody. And the Germans thought this is a brilliant opportunity to cause problems on Britain's flank. And so not only did they send Sir Roger Casement over on a U-boat, but they sent a trawler full of 20,000 Mauser rifles. And interestingly, a lot of those Mauser rifles were still being uncovered in the 1970s, were being used by the Republicans, being used by the IRA. So that technology... Those rifles not only were useful in Ireland, but were useful in the Boer War. The Germans were supplying them to the Boers, who were fighting an insurgency against the Brits. So this kind of campaigning, this kind of conflict, has always been around. And if we um, move to the Second World War, of course, after we'd had to run with our tails between our legs from Dunkirk, um, one of the things that Churchill sanctioned was the creation and use of the Special Operations Executive. And partly it had a psychological effect. It was to show that we were still in the game. It was a way of hurting the Germans. It was a way of giving the French hope. I mean, don't forget the French had capitulated after six weeks. So having a resistance, however effective or ineffective, was a useful psychological dimension. It gave the free French hope it gave the Brits hope that we were doing some sort of damage whether it was in Denmark or Holland or, or, or France and some of these networks were rounded up very quickly particularly in places like Denmark but at the same time basic insurgency and certainly towards D-Day which we'll come on to you know the blowing up of rail lines forced the Germans to use the road system where they were also ambushed there. So it slowed the German response. So that's really what we're talking about in terms of a proxy war. It's, it's using the unconventional to aid the conventional conflict, what's going on at the front. The SOE at the beginning of the war tended to tread quite heavily on the toes even of the SIS, the Secret Intelligence Services, and also the people trying to get prisoners of war back. So it wasn't that they had carte blanche to go out and do that. They, they caused quite a lot of trouble for our agents who were just trying to spy on the Germans because they were blowing things up and causing trouble. Well, it's, it's always this, this tension because good intelligence requires still waters in which to fish. So if you dynamite the pond... There are a lot of dead fish around, but you do alert people in the area. And you can see there was tension between SOE and SIS because the SOE called the Secret Intelligence Service the bastards of Broadway, which is where their headquarters were. So <laughs> there was no love lost. OK, move on a bit um, to Afghanistan and the US aid. That's another example of how the Mujahideen were doing pretty badly against the Russians, particularly their gunship helicopters, weren't they, until 
the Americans and particularly the this fellow Charlie Munger managed to get finance for them to have uh, surface air missiles to shoot the helicopters down. Yes, and there, there, there was always, again, this tension between the intelligence community, the politicians, and what to do and how to respond. And it was a very effective campaign. The Soviets at the time were, were no less sclerotic than the Russians are in Ukraine today. And they were fighting the same kind of campaign and they were not geared to fighting an insurgency. So you started getting the support of Mujahideen groups like Yunus Khalis or Abdul Haq or uh, Amashah Massoud in the Panjshir Valley. And it was very successful. And it, it, it was a no-brainer and it wasn't expensive. And this is one of the reasons that uh, nations like insurgencies because they don't have to expend a great deal of blood and treasure getting involved and there's a degree of deniability so you had stinger missiles being provided much better than the British blowpipe missiles that were being provided and you had anti-tank weapons you had mines being supplied you had training being supplied and it was a very successful campaign and by the end of it the Russians had lost 15,000 killed a great deal more wounded had lost a lot of their helicopters and it forced the Russians eventually, and certainly with what was going on back in Russia on the home front, with all the mothers and wives uh, complaining, this is what forced the hand of the Soviet government to eventually withdraw their troops. And it was a very successful insurgency. Um, OK, and so, but how would that compare with something like the Dofar campaign? Well, the Dofar was really a campaign that was supported by the Soviets and the Chinese. It, it, it was a different campaign. This was early 70s, and we mentioned this in our Special Forces podcast, but it's, it, it was the communist rebels coming across the border to try and topple the Oman, Omani regime and eventually spread into Saudi Arabia. So the Gulf region could certainly have gone communist. And you look at the Yemen campaign in the 1960s, where you know a few British mercenaries helped the insurgency there against the Egyptian forces. So there's this to and fro, this tug of war, and this constant rivalry. You know, when you get global superpowers, when you get two different sort of opposing forces, they are going to use proxy wars. They're going to use insurgencies to try and get their way. And the Dofar, the Yemeni rebels coming across into Oman, known as the Adu, were eventually defeated by the Sultan of Oman's forces and by the SAS sent by Britain. But, but it was a brilliant insurgency campaign. I mean, just as the Brits and the SAS had fought the insurgency in Malaya back in the 1950s, which is why the SAS was reconstituted and reformed and fought that campaign. And that was one that was supported by uh, communist China. So all around the world, you have these insurgencies going on. And are proxy wars more likely to be fought today because the major powers, China, Russia, UK, uh, America, whatever, we all have the nuclear deterrent. And so they don't want to fight each other directly because that would mean triggering certain articles in NATO and so on. So, so they have to fight proxy wars. That's true, but there were probably a lot more going on in the 60s and 70s, essentially because the Soviet Union still existed. I think the reach of Russia 
is less now. And yes, you get the Wagner group in, in Africa, but actually the, the number of civil wars, the number of really full-scale emergencies and insurgencies, the pushback in South Africa or in Rhodesia, for example, isn't there anymore. So you don't get the, the, the level, the scale of the insurgencies that, that you had during the Cold War. It, 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 it's lessened dramatically. And insurgencies now tend to be part of a larger, more generalised war, a, a part of a conventional war. As you see in Ukraine today, it's, it's what's going on in the background. So the second type of insurgency activity is what we might call pushback and that would be the response to invasion of a foreign power into a country which doesn't necessarily have the strength to resist in a traditional fashion with large armies of their own, and so they have to find other ways. Exactly. It's, it's to do with absorbing the blow, taking the punch, and surviving, and attacking the weaknesses of the enemy. And so often when it comes to a larger force invading, if you think about it, a large army requires logistics, requires support, whereas the insurgency, the partisans, are living off the land, living among their own people. So th there's a complete mismatch in a way, but it's, it's, it's like judo. You're using the strength of the enemy to overbalance them, to, to push them over. And you can see this in insurgencies around the world. Take the American Revolutionary War, the American War of Independence. There you had smaller forces of the colonists, but they inflicted a great deal of damage and psychological damage on the English forces that were out there. So you look at the battles of Lexington and Concord, and all the way along, you have spy networks like the Culper Ring, based in New York, that George Washington and his fellows set up. You have the Minutemen, and they're called Minutemen because it only took a minute for them to saddle up and head off. These were brilliant insurgency tactics, and they've been used around the world, this idea that you basically snipe at the opposition. And whether it's British redcoats or Roman forces or Greek phalanxes, if you have insurgents, if you have people attacking their supply columns, attacking the railways later on, for example, in, in uh, the Second World War when the Germans invaded Russia, you're always going for the weak spots. You're, you're attacking their food, you're attacking their command posts, and this is what insurgents do. You're, inf you're just wounding them. You're slowly bleeding them out. And so um, if we go all the way back to the mists of time, we've got the Spartans and uh, the Greek uh, conflict against the Persians, um, BC. And Leonidas, the Spartan king, he, he had some views on insurgency and how to utilise his forces. Well, we mentioned the Cryptia, and, and it's always said that, that Leonidas wanted to send a team to kill Xerxes in his tent. And there's no doubt that the Persians were being worn down by skirmishing and attacks. And, and th this is what always happens. It's just wearing them down. And you, you hit them wherever you can and then disappear, just as Lawrence of Arabia did, T. Lawrence did during the First World War in Arabia, hitting the supply lines, blowing up the Turkish hijab railways. So 
everywhere you go, it's this idea of being like a gas. It was taken up by Basil Littlehart, the military strategist and historian, who, who came up with that, that idea of the indirect approach. You never confront the enemy because you'll come off worse. So you just circle them, you snipe at them, you take them out where you can. And yet that's, that slightly goes against the grain of when you have two armies in conflict with each other, led by kings or queens, there's a sort of feeling that you shouldn't try and decapitate the leader. There's something slightly rude about it. You know, this sort of idea of going over to the other side and assassinating the other fella. It's a sort of, even though it would short-circuit the whole thing, it's sort of not in the rules. Yes, but on the battlefield, I think if they're in theatre, then it's probably a bit easier to, to, to do that. I mean, it's, it's a bit more acceptable. And you end up with an arrow in your eye. Well, exactly. And, and, and you, you look at how Ukrainian insurgents today are taking out the, the sort of Russian stooges in the occupied territories. And they will do it with car bombs. They will do it with bombs put at the front of the apartment blocks and things like that. Uh, or they will snipe at them. And this, again, has been going on a, 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 a long time. And by all accounts, they're still talking about the threat to President Zelensky from Russian assassins and special forces, even now. There, there's always going to be that. But, uh, but, but ultimately, uh, you know, war probably does come down to, although the insurgents can wear them down, it can break the will to fight and cause a retreat, uh, often it does come down ultimately to a conventional war but but the hope is that you've worn the other side down so much that they're in no position to fight you can push you know, them over yes you look at the retreat of napoleon's army or you look at the retreat of the germans and you see that it's a combination of conventional forces and partisan forces that destroy them eventually or, or you're hoping that um, the winter ends up killing them, uh, just as it ended up killing you know, 500,000 French going in with Napoleon. So we've had proxy warfare, we've had pushback, and the third type of insurgency is revolution. Yes, and revolution is has always been insurgency-based, particularly during the Cold War. You see it throughout the, the, the sort of from Africa to Latin America to Asia. I mean, you see or saw with it, the Viet Cong in uh, during the Vietnam War. It's always said that the, the Viet Cong only needed about five to ten tons of equipment a day going down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. You can fight an insurgency very effectively without having a lot of kit, just relying on local knowledge. And it's local knowledge. It's knowing the area, knowing your range. That, 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 that helps, that you, know, you have eyes and ears everywhere. And quite often it's when that insurgency tries to turn itself into a conventional force, a conventional attack. Well, like they, the, on the Tet Offensive. Like the Tet Offensive in 68. That's when you get hit very hard. I mean, eventually you could say maybe it worked because it has a psychological impact and destroyed America's will to keep on going there. But it was a massive blow to both the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. There were, there were huge tens of thousands of casualties and it wasn't a success. And, but they had to somehow go on to the offensive and move out of just being an insurgency because it was difficult to see how they would take over the country just by being an insurgency. 
And it's extraordinary to note that some famous revolutionary leaders, I'm thinking of Che Guevara, for example, have actually a terrible record of success. They may have their principles of how to do it and, and cart their ideology around the world, but actually he's pretty rubbish. Yes, he was. And, and I mean, he seemed to, to, to lose everywhere from Bolivia to Argentina to the Congo. <laughs> but Why do people keep, um, you know... But, because he, he, he was young, he was linked to the success in Cuba of the revolution there. And, and that sort of carried him on. Did you but, have a poster of him in your bedroom? When you were a small boy? No, I don't think I did, actually. I can't remember what I had. I think I had tanks. I think you had that girl with the tennis ball. I did. With the tennis racket. <laughs> Scratching her back. I, I did. But that's for another podcast. Yeah. But um, that, was in, that was insurgency at its best. But, but you, you look at some of the things that Che Guevara was spouting, and yet he, when he set up the revolution in Bolivia. He went and set up his, his campaign and his camp in, in the centre of the country. He hadn't reckoned on the mosquitoes and the insects. I, I think he was the only one with a mosquito net there. Uh, he, he was very smelly, so they probably were attracted to him. <laughs> you know. But because he was in the centre of uh, the country, his insurgency couldn't be supported from outside. So there were basic errors that he made. But we, we'll talk about him later. But, but many of these ideas, the political ideas of insurgency, that he took from Mao, for example, and adapted, they, they've been used by insurgencies around the world. And essentially, you've got to have a political dimension, a psychological dimension, and having some sort of ideology or some sort of nationalist uh, credentials is going to help that insurgency because you've got to win converts, you've got to win recruits, you've got to get defectors from the other side, you've got to get spies in the enemy camp. So insurgency is a complex thing and it's rough and ready and you're going to suffer setbacks and you're going to suffer losses but at least you can ultimately disappear back into the jungle or disappear back into the hills. That's what it's about. Okay, well, before we move on to the next section, I have to say that somewhere in this room, I was just looking for it, there is a banknote from Cuba. Um, and at one point, Che, was at, he was either the governor or one of the directors of the, the Revolutionary Bank in Cuba. And so he was given the job of signing the, the notes that they issued. And, you know, normally a bank would be signed, you know, James Jackson with a flourish, but he just signed the banknotes Che. Yeah, there you go. It's, so no wonder he was a he was a teenage hero. Yeah, it's like being a rock star. You only use one name. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. Once the insurgents start making their move, there is a response and often a reprisal against the civilian population. We talked about pushback, that, that that was what the insurgency is about, but often there's pushback by the regime or the invading force. They want to win. And if they're brutal enough to start a revolution uh, and brutal enough to invade a country, then there will be pushback by the opposition, by the insurgents. And so what happens, there's often a scorched earth policy. And they will go out, they will burn homesteads, they will kill arbitrarily uh, the civilian population, they will torture, they will rape, and you've seen it in Ukraine today. 
and you can go back way back in history and it's it's always been there all right some examples in 1069 what did the normans get up to in the north of england what didn't they get up to tom it was the harrying of the north the the murder of tens of thousands in northumbria which was the kingdom of northern england and and part of southern scotland what had happened there was an anglo-danish revolt against the, the Normans against the Norman imposition of their laws, their system, their oppression. So William the Conqueror took his armies up there and literally laid waste to the whole region. In, in that region alone, there was mass starvation. He burnt homesteads, he destroyed grain stores and the harvests. And it's said that 100,000 or so died from starvation. That's 5% of the entire population of England at the time. So that is a typical example of counterinsurgency, of hardcore counterinsurgency. And it's no different to what the Germans were doing in Belarus and Russia uh, during the Second World War, their attempt to exterminate the insurgency, the partisans that were coming up against them. And brutality is so often the, the knee-jerk response of any regime that, that is facing an insurgency. And that would all have happened before he commissioned the Doomsday Book, before he made his uh, oh, well, list well, of what, what was what and what he had. Well before. And the Doomsday Book actually sort of picks up on the fact that the villages had just ceased to, to be. There, there, were, there were swathes of territory, just as during the uh, American Civil War, there, there was a, a scorched earth policy uh, by the Union forces in various southern states to, to, to try and clamp down on the insurgency, to try and starve it out. And it's trying to starve the oxygen from the insurgency, to starve them of manpower, to starve them of food, to starve them of the psychological drive to keep the insurgency going. All right, let's jump forward to Second World War. And on the 9th of June, 1942, uh, there was a massacre after the assassination of the number two SS man, Heydrich. That's right. I mean, Heydrich was Reich protector of Bohemia and Moravia. And he was killed by Czech agents who had been trained by SOE back in Britain. And the Germans responded. And it's said that overall 1,500 to 2,000 people were killed. But in the town of Lidice, which was razed to the ground, there was mass extermination. There were 340 inhabitants killed. Uh, over 100 women, I think about 150 women, were sent to concentration camps. Women who were pregnant were forced into abortions. Uh, the children were sent off, uh, any who actually survived were sent off for adoption. It was the most terrible massacre. And it was a warning that this is what happens, that, that there will be uh, a, a price for any kind of insurgency, for any kind of hit on senior German figures in the region. And the Czechs suffered hugely, but the whole of Eastern Europe and, of course, Russia. But Lidice is, is always held up as, as, as a prime example of what happens when the authorities hit back against insurgency and how civilians suffer. And it's a, a, a good example of the sort of balance between 
the partisans who want to, you know, take action against the invader, the locals and the sponsoring force, in this case the Brits with their SOE training, in that you'd think that it would be quite difficult to persuade them to carry out an action like this because they know there's going to be reprisals. But often actually the, the, the locals, the partisans want to do this despite the fact that they know somebody is going to take it in the neck on their side. And it can go horribly wrong. I mean, if you parachute people in, you look at Operation Bull Basket towards the end of the war when the SAS sent a team into France. As soon as you had a team in a forest, you started getting local resistance groups and partisans joining them. So they're noticed. What happens? The Germans send in a conventional force and, and wipe them out. And over 30 SAS guys were killed. And some of them were injected, given lethal injections in hospital. So there's always this pushback. There's always this, this problem of civilian casualties, of collateral damage. Jump forward two years and one day to the 10th of June 1944. And there's an, another example of SS cruelty, this time after the after D-Day, a few days after D-Day, and the SS. That's right. I mean, the, the Das Reich Division, the 2nd Waffen-SS Panzer Division, were heading up north. A, a lot of these army units, German army units, they, they couldn't go on the railways because, guess what? Insurgents, partisans, resistance had, had blown up the railways or were sending target information back to... Allied air forces who were then blowing up the trains. So the Das Reich division was moving up towards Normandy and were harried along the way by insurgents, by the French resistance. And at Oridor sur Glen, they took revenge. They hanged the men and boys from lampposts. They pushed everyone else into barns. They set fire to the barns, threw grenades in. By the end of it, 643 were dead. And the, the, the village was, was raised to the ground. And that's what happens with counter-partisan sweeps. That's how the Nazis dealt with it. And it, it, it's a salutary lesson. And it's, it's, it's something that always has to be thought about by those outside who are trying to support the insurgency, or even by the insurgents within those communities, because you know that something bad is going to happen, that there will be examples made of entire towns, entire villages. And I think there was often concern, say, in the Second World War from the Brit side, uh, that this sort of thing was going to happen. I mean, as an example, the kidnapping of General Kreiper by Paddy Lee for more was something that led to reprisals. However, he was allowed to carry out that mission because the Cretans were very much in support of taking action against the Nazi occupiers. And they had a history of fighting, of insurgency and being partisans and being up in the hills fighting whoever was trying to invade their country. And, you know, there was a massacre after this kidnapping, but they were basically in favour of it. And if you talk to them in a way today about the story, the, the British part of it has almost disappeared in terms of the story. It is very much accretion tale of what happened in the Second World War and what, you know, why they did it, and, and it was all to the glory of Crete. But the fact is, if you have hills to disappear to, or a desert into which to vanish, it's so much easier to mount an insurgency, uh, that sort of campaign, because at least 
both your insurgents and the civilian population can find some sort of shelter. It's much harder in places like Holland, for example, or Denmark, if you're trying to mount a resistance, to get away with it, to hide, because you know that your people are going to be found and they are going to be executed summarily and, and, and sent away. So it's far harder in, in countries where deportation and, and, and reprisal is, is easier. It's far harder for the insurgents to actually operate freely. You mentioned scorched earth a minute ago. This was something that uh, the British used in southern Africa in the Boer War. They certainly tried to depopulate areas. Once the menfolk were away fighting and fighting with commandos, with their insurgency and people like Jan Smuts, which we'll talk about, leading their commando Louis raids. Louis Botha, another one. Yes, leading their raids against British positions. The British initially came up with a response, well, maybe we, we should deny the, the menfolk, the people who are fighting, the support of their homesteads. So there was a campaign to set fire to farms and herd women and children. And there were over 100,000 of them forced into 40 internment camps or concentration camps. And then because of a measles outbreak, because of dysentery, because those who were interred didn't know the, the, the basics of living in that sort of environment, uh, to over 28,000 died uh, in about a year. From disease. From disease, and it, it caused a huge outcry in England, and that's where you started getting uh, people and, and, and a huge number of women going out from England to help in those camps, and the, the, the camp system became civilianised rather than run by the military, and conditions got better. And also the um, the camps were to some extent there to protect, I mean this does sound a bit mealy mouth, but to protect the women and children of the Boer fighters from attacks from elsewhere. Completely. They were very vulnerable to Bantu attacks and, and because there was no one to guard the homesteads. So, and these were far-flung homesteads and farms. So there, there was that problem in the same way that uh, homesteads and farms in Zimbabwe became very vulnerable and in South Africa. So you know, you, you've always got that tension. Again, it's this real problem of how do you manage to counter an insurgency and how do you do it in, in a humane way? You know, there, there always tends to be overreach and the authorities tend to go in too hard. And eventually, sort of Kitchener's approach was to have these sort of almost uh, sort of game drives, game bird drives of, of cavalry moving forward across the veldt and, and pushing, herding the insurgents towards the railway lines and the pillboxes were dotted along there. And some of it was quite effective, but it was to do with land clearance. And you can see the land clearance that went on in the Highlands, for example, in Scotland. It's to do with control. It's to do with domination of the Oh, and area. the Normans as well. I mean, when they arrived yep. before that, the, the, the common man could go out and get a rabbit for his pot in a way that he couldn't after the Normans arrived and basically said, this is all us, ours and it's our hunting land and you can't. Well, and you can see where the Norman influence started to spread and how they dominated the landscape simply by looking at where they built their Norman keeps, their castles in the north, from York to Durham. I mean, it, it, it just goes across the landscape. So a great villain of the 20th century is Saddam Hussein, who in both 1980 and 1988 behaved 
very viciously towards his own population. You can look at all those regime chiefs, all those heads in that area, and, and, and the sort of Ba'athist movement that clamped down. They were one-party states. So as soon as you got different religious groups or different political groups coming up to challenge them, they were going to fight it. And so insurgencies began and they were put down. And over the 1980s, it's believed that Saddam Hussein gassed 30,000 of his own people. In 88, he dropped mustard gas and nerve agent on Halabja and killed 5,000 or more, wounded another 7,000. So that was the largest gas attack in about a century. So it, 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 it was absolutely dreadful. Then you get someone like President Assad, father of the present one, who, who went and killed thousands at Hama in 1982, the Muslim Brotherhood, putting down uh, an insurgency, putting down a political movement that, that, that he saw as a major threat. Currently, Ukraine, some, one of the things that uh, the Russian invaders have done is they have created this system of deportation, filtration and conscription stroke forced labour. They have. It's an old trick. First of all, you annex a land or claim that you own it and then say anyone who is against you is against your system, is against the will of the people. And it's been tried everywhere. But this is today's twist on it. And so you see the insurgency campaign, you see that anyone who doesn't buy into the Russian system is then deported and they say it's for your safety we're getting you to Crimea or we're getting you to back to Russia they've got some hostages they've got they've got hostages it it, it is a, a, a human shield if you like to and it's something with which to negotiate and it's part of this asymmetric warfare that we've talked about before that that whether it's Zaporizhia nuclear plant or whether it's using human shields it, it's it's a, the perfect solution for the Russians and they give their their own soldiers roofs over their heads for the for the winter so that they're, they're they're pushing people out they're filtering them they're taking the children filtering essentially is when they sort of check who they are yeah they're processing them yeah and it's it's no coincidence that when the whole of the Kharkiv region was taken and the and the Ukrainians pushed into Luhansk they didn't find any men folk uh, <laughs> apart from old men because those had all been taken uh, or, or they, or, or they'd gone over to the Ukrainians, or they'd side. gone to the Ukrainians, mm. or they they had been tortured and killed, mm. and you can see by the torture chambers throughout the entire regions that have been liberated that Russia sees torture, sees the the the, the sort of beasting and brutality of the civilian population as absolutely normal, as as just a as a, a conventional part of their war fighting. And and so if, if you have a regime that thinks nothing of hitting civilian infrastructure with cruise missiles or drones, then you're going to have a regime that thinks nothing of brutalising the civilian population uh, under their own watch, under their own zones of, of control. All right, let's turn our eyes back to classical times, the old professions. And Sparta, just a quick additional mention here. It's a good example, as Plato and Plutarch pointed out, of 
armies that have irregulars, armies that have guerrilla aspects to it. And you look at something like the Battle of Silesia in the 3rd century BC, and that was the use by the Spartans of cryptia, of guerrilla groups, of spies that could get information on what was going on behind the enemy lines and to the rear of the enemy army, the Macedonian army. And so right from the start, you've got this irregular element in the same way that you had mercenaries being used or pirates being used to, to help bolster the forces, the, the regular forces, the conventional forces of the commanders. Okay, so um, jump on to um, the turn of the millennium, 4 AD, and you've got the greatest defeat of Rome. You do. You had the forces of Rome sent by Augustus Caesar, and they had that amazing battle in the Teutoburg Forest. They were up against tribes of Germania, and you had the incredibly well-ordered, well-disciplined Roman legions, three legions, 20,000 men with cavalry. But they were harassed and attacked all the way through this dense forest over three days, and they were totally massacred. And there you had irregular forces. There you had the sort of unconventional approach, that sons who approach of attacking the enemy in the weakest point, you're pushing them forward, kettling them, channeling them into areas where they couldn't operate, where they couldn't function to their advantage. And it was the irregulars, it was the partisans who won the day. Yeah, I mean, it was such a disaster that being a true Roman Varus, who was in charge of the whole Roman operation, had to commit suicide at the end of it which is an excellent thing to do. And Arminius was the leader of the German tribes that had signed up for this particular adventure. And um, they essentially used the narrow paths of the Teutoburg Forest to their advantage because that's how they were they knew how to fight, and also it was their, their country. They were familiar with it. This is it. They knew the ground, and that's really what an insurgency is about. It's knowing your local area. But you push on to the Second World War, and you still had the problems getting across the Rhine and pushing into that area. And there's so many examples of you know, allied forces encountering the... The, the sort of Hitler youth, the irregulars and the Volkssturm. And, and the fanatics. And the fanatics armed yeah. with Panzerschrecks and Panzerfaust, anti-tank weapons. What's a Panzerschreck? It was just another type of anti-tank rocket right. and highly effective, very advanced for say, but easy to use, just like the end laws being used by the Ukrainians today against uh, Russian tanks that have, that have winnowed Russian armour in Ukraine. So this type of insurgency, and certainly along the Rhine, that area, you had insurgency across the centuries and it, it just shows that this is a timeless profession and of course the romans had endless trouble in the holy lands didn't they because that, that even though it wasn't a, a necessarily a big part of their empire they had a lot of trouble with the sicarii they had a lot of trouble and, and that was an ongoing insurgency and if you go to places like herodium today or to masada you you you, you see these sort of points from which 
the zealots and the Sakari, the extreme end of the zealots, were, were, were attacking them. And the Sakari weren't averse to, to slaughtering their own people. I mean, people they thought were turncoats or people who weren't coming over to their side. And that's another element of insurgency. So often the insurgencies can do terrible things as well. Well, but, also they, had to, uh, they weren't allowed to commit suicide, were they? So they had to kill each other anyway when, when they were caught in a tight corner. Well, yes, the drawing of lots, and, and Josephus talks about that and gives a sort of vivid description of these things. But no one knows quite how, how it sort of worked out, how, how it was decided or, or how they drew lots. And what does the last man do? He sneaks off, <laughs> joins the other side. D d dies from natural causes. But, but, but it's a dirty business. And I think that, again, you can see that uh, throughout history. It's, 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 it's grubby and it's grim and it's bloody. And a bit like Germany, if you move forward centuries, you, you come to what happened in post-war, post-Second World War, uh, Palestine under the British protectorate because there again you had uh, a Jewish resistance group, a Jewish insurgency run by groups such as Haganah and Ergun who, who attacked British forces and used unconventional, used partisan methods including bombs, including the first ever known car bomb or truck bomb. This was something that, that was evolving and developing and would become a real nuisance, a real pain for the post-colonial environment, those who were withdrawing from empire uh, in the years ahead and those who had to fight insurgencies uh, that were being backed by the Soviet Union or by communist China. There are a number of examples where people cite the American Civil War as a sort of first modern war. And we had... Uh, amongst other operations, insurgency operations on both sides, really, with bushwhackers and jayhawkers fighting each other. And it became really bloody and really grim. And there were a lot of tit-for-tat killings, there were massacres, there were raids, there were raids on trains, there were raids on towns. And then you get that, that massive... Uh, 1863 raid on uh, Lawrence by Quantrill, Quantrill's raiders who went in and killed 150 so civilians and razed it to the ground. And that was in response to earlier raids by Confederate forces that led to deaths, led to people dying in prison. And so once it became sort of infused, suffused with this sort of ideological dimension, this idea of, of, of two systems against each other, there, there was no sort of restraint on, on what people would do. And once more, you see this idea of a scorched earth policy coming in. So it's not just ancient times, it was brought to, to the then present day with General Order Number 11, with Thomas Ewing, the, the local commander, saying, right, we are going to start deporting people from Jackson. We're going to depopulate Kansas. We're going to scorch the earth of West Missouri. Eventually, 2,200 square miles of land were just scorched. It was known as uh, the burnt land or the burnt area. And it was completely depopulated. No one could live there. And, and this is really what happens with insurgency. This is what happens when you know, the, the powers that be want to deny the area to the enemy. 
Right, a little commercial break here for all of you who are still enjoying this podcast. If you are, please will you pass it on to a friend. You can send it by text or WhatsApp, the link to our website or an app. Thank you. We've had the burrs and carry on on the 20th century. Latin America has always been well regarded for guerrilla activity, revolution and insurgency. An example of a successful insurgent partisan who then ended up commanding armies was Pancho Villa. He was remarkably successful. He started out with 28 men accompanying him. And by the end, he was a general commanding tens of thousands. But he always liked guerrilla tactics. He always took this indirect approach. He liked cavalry. He liked attacking the flanks. He liked coming in from behind. He liked taking the enemy down where they least expected to be taken down. And he was hugely successful, uh, although he was ultimately assassinated. So like a lot of these guerrilla commanders, a lot of these of feared military leaders. He, he, he didn't have a good end. But he, so he was Mexican, of course. Um, he had actually retired at that point, so he'd perhaps done everything he wanted to do. And maybe if you're a, uh, somebody like that, to be, to be bumped off rather than sitting in an old people's home for 20 years might be the way to go. Certainly from his picture, he looks like he wants to go out in a blaze of glory. Well, it was like Bill Hicks talking about his grandparents saying they should be stuntmen in a Chuck Norris martial arts movie rather than sitting in a home. I won't have a <laughs> word said against Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, 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 and so he, 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 he's always held up as a, as a, as a, as a great guerrilla commander. And he was certainly more successful than someone like Che. And, and, and Che, we mentioned it before, was sort of tried to employ Maoist tactics. He believed you could force out local government forces, take over an area, uh, apply guerrilla tactics and uh, the guerrilla code to, the, to that region, and there would be popular support. So do you think he was more of a theory boy than an actual leader? I think so. You always get this. He certainly wasn't practical. He certainly didn't think through the details of any kind of military or insurgency campaign. And this is why it tended to fail. He always assumed that the local population would rise up, firstly, to greet him, and secondly, to, to fight the enemy, to fight the government. And, and that didn't always happen. And eventually it caught up with him, or at least the Bolivian armed forces caught up with him, and he was captured and killed. Incident on the advance to Damascus. Lawrence of Arabia destroys a Turkish column. 24th of September 1918. From report by T.E. Lawrence. Talal had seen what we had seen. He gave one moan like a hurt animal, then rode to the upper ground and sat there a while on his mare, shivering and looking fixedly after the Turks. I moved near to speak to him, but order caught my rein and stayed me. Very slowly, Talal drew his headcloth about his face, and then he seemed suddenly to take hold of himself, for he dashed his stirrups into the mare's flanks and galloped headlong, bending low and swaying in the saddle right at the main body of the enemy. It was a long ride down the gentle slope across a hollow. We sat there like stone while he rushed forwards, the drumming of his hooves unnaturally loud in our ears, for we had stopped shooting and the Turks had stopped. Both armies waited for him, and he rocked on in the hushed evening till only a few lengths from the enemy. 
Then he sat up in the saddle and cried his war cry, Talal! Talal! Twice in a tremendous shout. Instantly their rifles and machine guns crashed out, and he and his mare riddled through and through with bullets, fell dead among the lance points. Order looked very cold and grim. God give him mercy. We will take his price. He took his rein and moved slowly after the enemy. We called up the peasants, now drunk with fear and blood, and sent them from this side and that against the retreating column. The old lion of battle waked in Order's heart and made him again our natural, inevitable leader. By a skilful turn he drove the Turks into bad ground and split their formation into three parts. The third part, the smallest, was mostly made up of German and Austrian machine gunners grouped round three motor cars and a handful of mounted officers or troopers. They fought magnificently and repulsed us time and time again despite our hardiness. The Arabs were fighting like devils, the sweat blurring their eyes, dust parching their throats, while the flame of cruelty and revenge which was burning in their bodies so twisted them that their hands could hardly shoot. By my order we took no prisoners, for the only time in our war. At last we left this stern section behind and pursued the faster two. They were in panic, and by sunset we had destroyed all but the smallest pieces of them, gaining as and by what they lost. Parties of peasants flowed in on our advance. At first there were five or six to a weapon, then one would win a bayonet, another a sword, a third a pistol. An hour later, those who had been on foot would be on donkeys. Afterwards, every man had a rifle and a captured horse. By nightfall, the horses were laden and the rich plain was scattered over with dead men and animals. In a madness born of the horror of Taphus, we killed and killed, even blowing in the heads of the fallen and of the animals, as though their death and running blood could slake our agony. Uh, a great insurgent in the Middle East in the First World War was T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. He had a huge effect on both the idea of guerrilla warfare and as a sort of national figure. Uh, if you want to see his Arab outfit, you just have to go to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford and it's still there, along with the lamp of uh, Guy Fawkes himself. Have but, they also got the stuffed camel that he managed to shoot in, in the head as he was charging into battle? Yeah, it often went terribly wrong. A lot of the groundwork had already been done and this is the thing about successful insurgencies and uprisings is that quite often it's it's the gritty detail it's the it's the initial work that is done by others so there has to be a shout out for someone like Gertrude Bell the cartographer and explorer and traveler and adventurer who who had made those contacts with the arab sheikhs with the tribal leaders and, and she gets chief. a fulsome uh, account in our heroines of the 21st century Yes, yes, without her, there would never have been a Lawrence of Arabia. And Lawrence himself was very remarkable and successful. I and mean, he did sort of... Uh, and clearly a leader, clearly an inspiring leader. leader. And, and different. He was outside the norm and a bit like special forces commanders uh, throughout history. He, he, he He'd was, be like Sterling or someone like that, he, or Paddy May. Yes, he, he was 
outside the establishment. He he was, he, and some derided him and some praised him. But he certainly had an effect. He personally blew up almost eighty bridges. He did a lot to disrupt the Turks. He did a lot to confuse and confound the the the, the Turkish garrisons. Well, I like the fact that he he blew them up in such a way that the poor old Turks first of all had to pull them down because they weren't completely shattered and then rebuild them so sort of doubling up the time and effort it took to repair the damage well a bit like the kerch bridge in the crimea today that that it actually it's the repair work that that takes it's probably easier to rebuild than it is to to repair so for all, for all our ukrainian li- listeners jamie's got a big smile on his face when he said <laughs> kerch bridge <laughs> Yes. I think you can take that as an endorsement of support. <laughs> so, so, so T. Lawrence was hugely into this sort of spectacular shattering of logistics, and it is the logistics: is hitting the resupply, hitting the weakest links in the enemy machine, uh, and that's really what a successful insurgency does, a successful guerrilla war does. And you know, Lawrence had that effect. In the raid on Aqaba, it's extraordinary. Although he didn't lead it, it was, it was led by Auda, uh, on, on with 49 other horsemen, 49, 50 horsemen. It was Auda who led the charge after Lawrence said to him, look, fighting from a distance, shooting from a distance isn't working. So Auda led the charge on, on horseback. Uh, Lawrence then came in with several hundred cameleers and as you said, managed to shoot his old camel um, through through the head. So he wasn't always the most practical soldier. A bit like Sterling, quite often these these special forces leaders, these guerrilla leaders, aren't that practical themselves. They're but safest armed with an umbrella. The, the, exactly, or, or, or a swagger stick. But but you can see in that raid on Aqaba, you can see in the in the triumph of of, of hitting the enemy where they, they least expect it. You're coming out of the desert, that that is the sort of campaign that can have profound results. Although politically, of course, it, it didn't quite come to pass later on. And the, the Arabs of the region felt deeply betrayed by, by what followed. But, but during the war itself, it was a highly successful insurgency campaign. Partisans in the Second World War were... There were a great many in Russia when the Germans and Nazis decided to invade Russia, Operation Barbarossa in 1941. Partisans rose up with the full backing of the government, the Soviet government, to fight the Nazis behind uh, and in front of the lines. And they had a, a huge effect. They also teamed up with other partisan groups from the Baltic states. Um, however, they quite often fought them as well if they didn't, couldn't agree on their ideological uh, status. Thus, in 1943-1944, Russian, for example, Russian partisans invited some Polish partisans to a discussion meeting uh, and got them to agree to disarm. And once they disarmed them, they were executed or more likely murdered. And lastly, we've got the Ukrainians had their own partisan groups, the UPA, and I think this goes true to the spirit of Ukrainians today. They ended up fighting both the Germans and the Russians. I think it's all part of this sort of fluid, dynamic situation. The, the, the politics are shifting all the time. The front line is shifting. 
you're getting insurgencies going backwards and forwards. Uh, the reason the Russians created such a huge partisan network is that they were on the back foot. And once you're invaded, once you're trying to buy time and bleed out the Nazis who are invading, once you're in the middle of pushing your your forces and your factories behind the Urals, east of the Urals, to try and recover and rebuild and get your forces focused again, partisans are the only thing you've got. And so you see how effective they are in places like Belarus, where in two years they managed to kill 30,000 German soldiers there. They managed to blow up over 3,000 bridges. Again, they were doing that classic partisan thing of, of hitting the weakest points, hitting the communications nodes and the railheads, taking out trucks, you know, mining roads. This is what partisans do best. And whether it was you know the Second World War or going on to Afghanistan and the Mujahideen or the Taliban using IEDs, you know they use whatever comes to hand and whatever they can use to go from a position of weakness to a position of strength. And in Afghanistan, I mean, they're prepared in some respects to take huge losses because I mean the Russians lost fifteen thousand and that caused them to withdraw eventually and also the collapse of the Soviet Union came not long after that but they lost something like two million. I think if you're fighting a resistance war or an ideological war quite often the the the, the sort of the weakest link is not your manpower you know you can afford to take the losses you look at the millions who were killed uh, during the Vietnam War that didn't worry the North Vietnamese authorities that didn't worry the Viet Cong you know, they could they could take the punishment. And so often that is the case with insurgencies because they are fighting what they consider either a holy campaign or a liberation campaign. And so, you know, they don't really mind about the losses it's, it's because their civilians are dying anyway. You know, the Germans were, were applying their scorched earth to the Soviet Union. Uh, people were dying in their millions. Uh, you know, if you think that five million... Russians died in German labor camps. So why not die as a partisan? You know, you're at least you're fighting for your country. And there were huge numbers. There were partisan groups that had sixty thousand members. So once more, they were they weren't just attacking the Germans. They were also inflicting punishment on those that they thought were collaborators, those that they thought were had had sided with the Germans. Just as Ukrainian insurgents today are killing collaborators who they think are, are too close to the Russians, who have been dealing with the Russians. Or at least sellotaping them to lampposts with the word traitor written That's on, right. on the tape across their faces. Nice. But just back for a moment to Vietnam and the uh, what about the Coochie Tunnels? Well, it, it was a brilliant network of over 200 miles of tunnels. And, and it's very difficult, even though the Americans had the tunnel rats, to go down tunnels and, and flush out the enemy, flush out the Viet Cong. There were so many booby traps. There were so many punji stakes. I mean, some of the devices they used to fool anyone looking for them. They, they, they had... Uh, stoves with 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 pipes coming out that that dispersed the smoke hundreds of yards away. They had trapdoors underneath streams. They they had all sorts of means of deceiving 
their opponents. And if you're fighting an insurgency, if, if, if the enemy is fighting you in a way that they don't understand what you're about, they're going to constantly get it wrong. I'll never forget that the Americans seeded the Ho Chi Minh Trail with seismic detectors, and the Viet Cong simply took those seismic detectors away and just ran truck engines next to them so that the uh, people looking at their screens behind, back at US bases thought there was a huge convoy coming down the trail, so it would mount a mass bombing raid. But of course, they were just being fooled. They were just being conned. It's and, like and turning the tap on in your bathroom when you're being being uh, spied on or, or, the, or the radio. This this is what happens. It's it's just fooling the enemy, and it's it's just or it's just reversing the technology onto them, and and again taking advantage of their weaknesses. And if you're over reliant on technology or a certain strategy or tactic, that's what the insurgency is best doing: is is getting underneath it and taking advantage of it. And then, of course, we ended up in Afghanistan for 20 years uh, with, uh, as allies to the US and um, suffered from particularly uh, the problem of IEDs. Exactly. And it doesn't matter what campaign you're in. If you're in an area for a long time in another country, you are going to be subject to some kind of insurgent guerrilla partisan activity. And it's not just the conventional front. It's, it's, it's the enemy avoiding that kinetic impact, that, that frontal assault on you, and going at your flanks or to your rear, because that's where you are most vulnerable. And that's why, whether it was Napoleon being bled out in Russia or, or the Germans being bled out in Russia, ultimately you end up wearing fur coats sent from Berlin to keep you warm because you don't have cold weather gear. In fact, the Russian soldiers in Ukraine today don't even have the luxury of fur coats being sent from Moscow. So it's it's just one of the rules of war. The longer it goes on, the more the insurgents are going to get organised. And uh, obviously any of you who haven't listened to it should listen to our three episodes on IEDs. 48 to 50. This podcast has been a bit of a plug for other podcasts on bloody violent history, so we hope you enjoy them. What have we learnt? I think we've learnt that nothing really changes. It's no coincidence that there's a Spanish word sicario, which means hitman, and it's based on the sicari of the ancient world, of, of the Holy Land. And the lessons that we've learned are essentially that conventional armies are vulnerable to unconventional attack. They're vulnerable to psychological attack. They're vulnerable to what is going on in the civilian population. And it's easy to take a country. It's very hard to hold a country. Britain discovered that in Afghanistan in the 19th century. Many nations have discovered that both both in uh, colonial times and post-colonial times, and the superpowers discovered that through the, the Cold War. So conventional armies are vulnerable, and the other lesson is so often it is the civilian population that suffers, both from the invasion or the revolution and the insurgencies that grow up around it. And I think the last lesson is that quite often those insurgencies 
not only are ugly during the war, but it turns uglier afterwards. And so often there's fratricide between the different guerrilla groups, partisan groups. And you can see the tensions in France, for example, after the Second World War and during the Second World War between the Free French and the Communists. You could see that in Afghanistan between the Taliban and other groups. Uh, you could see that in Tito's uh, Yugoslavia, for example, between the different groups. And the enemies are not only the enemies to their front, the enemies, the invaders and the aggressors, it's, it's the enemies around them. It's trying to keep a kind of political cohesion and move into the peaceful aftermath. That's the problem, because you're talking about men who, and women who have been uh, subjected to violence, to a great degree of violence, and brutality and brutishness is what often follows, and it's the mindset that gets embedded in the population. And it's a great opportunity for a bit of settling of scores. Always. Do we have a postscript to this episode on Insurgent? I think the postscript is something we've, we've touched on throughout this podcast and, and it's worth bringing it forward to today and Ukraine because you know, the more the Russians have claimed that they've annexed territory, the more their people and their fellow travellers, the Ukrainian collaborators that have moved to their side, are vulnerable to guerrilla attack. And it's not just ad hoc insurgency. It's an insurgency that is being coordinated, being arranged and controlled by the conventional forces. So yet again, the, the insurgency is really part of the ongoing war, the, the wider war. And like the uh, Cryptia of Sparta, here you have just uh, the unconventional aspect add-on to what is going on on the battlefront and it's it's a useful dimension it's certainly a useful dimension for the ukrainians who numerically are smaller than the russians but in terms of their expertise and their success have triumphed there you have it folks an insurgent can make life very uncomfortable even unbearable for an invading army and also for any government in office, but not entirely in power. Brutal acts occur on both sides. There are ways to defeat an insurgent, but if the people behind the insurgency have the determination and the right kind of support, they can often be successful in their aims. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. You have been listening to Bloody Violent History. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.